Well, let me just say, and I would assume that many of you will agree with me, it's very difficult for me to sing in my heart. Um, I want to burst forth in song, having not done so in many months. It's also quite difficult for me to look out and not see your whole face, but to see that partially covered. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said, though we look through a glass dimly, soon we shall see face to face. We do indeed look forward to a time in glory when we shall not sing in our hearts, but our voices will be heralded throughout the universe in praise of our glorious King. And face to face, we shall see Him. I bring you greetings this morning from Union School of Theology in Bridge End. My wife and I, as you can tell from just me simply opening my mouth, I'm not from Wales. Nor am I from England or Scotland or Ireland or any European country for that matter. I will let you guess which state I am from. Uh, It's in the South. But I bring you greetings, of course, from the administration, Michael Reeves and others. We think so dearly and highly of this church and the gospel ministry that you have both here in this community as well as around the country and world. It's such a joy to be with you this morning, and I'm so thankful for the invitation now to bring God's Word to you. Let's take our Bibles and turn once again to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. I read to you the text already in our opening time together, but I would like to draw your attention back to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them. With Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear Him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves." Well, without a doubt, this is one of the most unique and most glorious experiences in the life of our Lord. We have the tremendous and enormous privilege in Mark chapter 9 of being taken by the Holy Spirit into a setting that only three disciples, Peter, James, and John are allowed to witness. According to the parallel passage of this account in Luke chapter 9, Jesus led this small inner circle of disciples up a mountain called Mount Hermon. 
one late evening to pray. Now, Mount Hermon is the most significant mountain in northern Israel. Its snow-capped peak rises 9,000 feet above sea level and 11,000 feet above the Jordan Valley. It's the highest point in all of Israel and it's said on a very clear day you can see this mountain as far south as Jerusalem. This is where the Jordan River begins and flows south watering the whole land of Israel. Mount Hermon is not foreign to any reader of the Old Testament. This mountain was considered sacred by the worshipers of the Canaanite god Baal. It was covered in high places and Temples were erected all over its slopes, and it had become a sacred place because so many false gods were worshipped there. You may well remember the Old Testament story of David killing Goliath happened here on the slopes of Mount Hermon. When we come to the New Testament, this would be the location where Jesus would take His disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And there, among the shrines to the worship of the false gods, Peter would proclaim in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, you are the Christ. But the greatest event, the greatest event in her history occurs here in Mark chapter 9. In the midst of all the high places and the ancient altars and the ancient idols of the false pagan gods, here Jesus unveils Himself to reveal His majestic nature as truly God and truly man. And so here Jesus is with Peter, James, and John during one beautiful evening Climbing up this sacred mountain for the purpose the disciples did not know. But they just followed Jesus. But we know that Jesus is taking His disciples up this mountain because they need encouraging. If you look in Mark chapter 8, we know that it was only six days before that Jesus had told them about His coming suffering and crucifixion that He would endure once they made their way into Jerusalem. Jesus had asked who they believed He was and Peter answered in his great confession in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus, you are the Christ. And after Peter's confession, Jesus begins to solemnly speak to them about what will happen once they come into Jerusalem. His rejection by the leaders of Israel. His impending suffering and denial. His impending death. And finally, His glorious resurrection. And so, 
Peter, James, and John and the other disciples have this on their mind and this heart and their hearts. When we come into Jerusalem, this Jesus whom we love and know and have come to believe is the Messiah will be rejected and will be crucified? Surely not, Jesus. And with these words in chapter 8, Jesus shocks their messianic expectations. You see, each of the disciples had grown up hearing that when the Messiah comes, He would overthrow their Roman oppressors and would set up His kingdom on the earth. You see, in their minds, they have envisioned a militant Messiah who comes with a sword. But Jesus is warning them that to embrace the true Messiah, to embrace Him, was to embrace not a militant Messiah, but a humble, suffering servant. And so now with suffering coming, with His cross just over the horizon, with His death a reality in the eternal plan of God, Jesus decides to encourage this inner group of disciples with something glorious. And I think, friends, there's something so beautiful here about our Lord, isn't there? We see here something of His constant care and love and concern for His own. We see His desire to teach His own to anchor their hopes not in the temporal world, but instead in the realities of glory. And so here they are, under the stars, in this cool, crisp evening on Mount Hermon. And Jesus is reminding them that to see the glory you must first go through suffering. And we're called to do the same, are we not? As the Holy Spirit leads us through God's Word up this mountain with Jesus' disciples, we all need this reminder in the midst of sin and a fallen world and sadness and suffering. Perhaps for the very first time, you need to recognize Jesus for who He really is as the Son of the living God who desires to take you unto Himself. And so let's begin to walk through this passage as we see several simple things that just really help us dissect this text and soak up the truth and as much truth as is possible. The first thing that we should take hold of in this text is the actual event that transforms Jesus and unveils His humanity to reveal His divinity. We know this event called the transfiguration. Let me draw your attention back to verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. As I've already mentioned to you, in Luke chapter 9, Luke provides a little more detail, telling us that they actually go up the mountain to pray. 
Now we can only imagine what Jesus must have been praying for. Perhaps it was very much like His high priestly prayer in John 17 when He prayed for Himself and He prayed for His disciples and He prayed for the lost world before His soon coming death. It's very likely that Peter, James, and John would have joined Jesus in offering their own prayers, their own requests, and their own praises. And so here they are on Mount Hermon in prayer before God the Father. However, according to Luke chapter 9, the disciples, as they often do when they're praying with Jesus became very sleepy and evidently fell asleep. And we have no idea who woke up first, but whoever it must have been, we can say with great certainty that they were wide awake in an instant and quickly shook the others awake. Notice verse 2, He was transfigured. Figured before them, his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Can you imagine this scene? The disciples awake, and Jesus is framed by a thousand summer stars. And his clothing is glowing white. Luke says his garments were dazzling. They were glittering, as the word is sometimes translated. And it was so bright that it was as bright as a flash of lightning. Now, not only are his clothes dazzling white, but Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 17 that his face shone like the sun. Jesus was transfigured. The word literally means metamorphosed. You see, for a brief moment, the veil of our Lord's humanity was lifted and His eternal, glorious essence was allowed to shine through. The glory which our Lord Jesus laid aside in His incarnation begins once again to rise to the surface. And for a moment, for a moment, beloved, we have the tremendous privilege to have a glimpse of Jesus' pre-incarnate glory. The glory that He had possessed and has possessed for all of eternity as He dwelt supremely and majestically with His Father and with the Holy Spirit. You see, this is a glance backward to His pre-human glory. But it's not only a glance backwards, it's also a glance forward to His future eternal glory when He returns and His robes shall be brighter than the sun and His eyes as a flame of fire. And there on the ground lies Peter, James, and John. Speechless, Absolutely. Motionless, most definitely. Lifeless, yes. As they beheld the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory. 
displayed. Now remember, Jesus knew what was coming when they arrive in Jerusalem. He had His suffering and His impending death upon His mind. And oh, what compassion and care He has for His disciples in reminding them now of His divine nature. You see, He wants His disciples, when He's arrested, when He's beaten, when He's marred, when He carries His cross, when His hands are nailed, when His side is opened, when He bows His head in death, He wants His disciples to remember in their hearts this glory. And we know that the cross eclipses the transfiguration for a moment. But it would be the beloved disciple John who would say, we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Can you say that? Can you say that you have experienced the glorious, radiant light of Christ dawning through the darkness of your sin? Can you say that in the midst of your darkest moments that you hold tightly to the person and glory of Christ? That's Jesus' call in this moment. Remember this. Because death is coming. And as the disciples are speechless and spellbound, they're giving something else to take notice of. In verse 4, And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now the first question that comes to mind Friends, is simply this. How did Peter, James, and John know who these two men were that had appeared with Jesus? Well, we don't really know. Perhaps they were addressing one another as they were in conversation with one another. The second question that comes to mind is why Elijah and Moses... Why not, for instance, Abraham and Ezekiel or Isaiah and Jeremiah? Well, I think there are several reasons that we could contemplate as to why Elijah and Moses appear here with Jesus. Both of these men had previously had conversations with God on mountaintops. We all know In Exodus 31 of Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. We know of Elijah's encounter with God on Mount Horeb in 1 Kings chapter 19. Both men had been shown the glory of God. Both men had famous departures from the earth. Moses died viewing the promised land from afar on Mount Nebo. And Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind taken to heaven. Moses was the great lawgiver. Elijah was the great prophet. Moses was the founder of Israel's religious economy and Elijah was the restorer of that religious economy. So you see, together, Moses and Elijah were an ultimate summary of the Old Testament. And they are now appearing with Jesus as His glory is being unveiled. Now a third question comes to mind on this scene. 
What are they talking about? Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus and Moses and Elijah are speaking about Jesus' coming crucifixion and death. So do you have the scene in mind, friends? The chief representative of the law and the chief representative of the prophets are carrying on a conversation with Jesus who Himself has said, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Can you imagine what a theological conversation this must have been? Now, everything, of course, doesn't register in the minds of the disciples witnessing all of this. They have so much to learn. But we can affirm that Peter's earlier confession that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus was the Messiah, is graphically confirmed by these two grand representatives of the Old Covenant. Now keep in mind, this was meant for the disciples. They were to take all of this into their minds and hearts as a point of hope and great encouragement. What are they to receive now from this? Well, my friends, Jesus was the fulfillment of everything the law pointed to. He fulfilled what the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant was teaching. Jesus fulfilled what the sacrificial system represented. Jesus fulfilled the law that the nation of Israel failed to fulfill. Jesus fulfilled every messianic prophecy spoken by the prophets. Everything toward which all of the law and the prophets pointed are now converging like mighty rushing rivers upon this one glorious man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. What a sight this must have been. Here is Jesus, sparkling, glittering, and dazzling, talking with Moses, who had been dead for 1,400 years, and Elijah, who had gone to heaven 900 years ago. And if there's ever a time for silence and contemplation, you would think, yes, this is it. But into this perfect scene enters Peter. A man who always had something to say when nothing should be said. Look at verse 5. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for you that we are here. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say. Well, what in the world is Peter up to here? Sometimes I think we give Peter a hard time. And I think at best we could say perhaps this is a, a courteous reflex, if you will. We all do that from time to time, don't we? We say things that immediately we wish we could stuff back in. Perhaps you've never done that. He wanted to make tabernacles 
for these heavenly visitors so that the disciples could wait on them. Perhaps, perhaps Peter thought, yes, this is it. The Messiah, Jesus, has finally done what we thought He was supposed to do. His glory is being unveiled. The promised glory has come. He is now going to sit and assume His throne. He's going to overthrow our Roman oppressors. All of this nonsense about suffering and death could not be true. Let's make tabernacles and begin the reign of glory now. We do know, according to the New Testament, that Peter often wanted to avoid the suffering of the cross, even to the point that he will eventually deny that he even knows Jesus three times. We don't know what's going on in the mind of Peter. But what we do know is our Lord's answer. And what is that? Complete silence. Aren't you thankful that our Lord knows what we need better than we know what we need? Sometimes our greatest prayers and the answer to those prayers are complete silence because He knows what's best for us. This was a time for worship. This was a time for contemplation, Peter. Not work. Notice verse 7. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. This was not a white, puffy cloud that we see in the sky when we look up. Oh no, this was no ordinary cloud. A study of the Old Testament reveals that a luminous cloud, a cloud that we know as the Shekinah glory of God, a sign and manifestation of the presence of God, the form in which God reveals Himself to His people in the Old Testament. Do you remember the pillar of cloud by day that led the children of Israel through the wilderness and the pillar of fire by night that also led them. This was that same glory cloud that passed by Moses as God in Exodus 33 covered Moses' face in the cleft of the rock, only allowing Moses to behold the afterglow of His glory. This was the same cloud which covered the nearly finished tent of meeting and so filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40 that Moses could not enter it. This was the same cloud in 1 Kings chapter 8 that filled Solomon's temple on dedication so that the priests were not able to walk inside. It was the same glory which Ezekiel saw rise from between the cherubim and move over the threshold of the temple because of Israel's apostasy in Ezekiel chapter 8 and then slowly move out over the eastern gate and hesitating just for a moment and flashing over the Mount of Olives. My friends, it had been 600 years since anyone in Israel had seen this cloud. But as Jesus and His inner circle in the silence of the night air, it says a cloud came and overshadowed them.
In my imagination, I can only picture those at the base of the mountain as they looked up and saw Mount Hermon capped in divine incandescence of the glory of God. Now, Peter, James, and John were in the cloud with Moses and Elijah, which previously Moses had not even been permitted to directly behold. And here these three disciples are there in this cloud. The priests were not able to enter the cloud. Elijah was not able to enter the cloud. Solomon was not able to enter the cloud. But here are these three disciples. Why? Because Jesus was with them. Oh, beloved, what a glorious truth that is. That with Jesus we have access to our Heavenly Father. With Jesus standing in the radiant Shekinah glory of His Father, shimmering and glittering. This was not only a declaration about Christ, but it's also a prophecy of that which is to come. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17 that the same Lord the same Lord is going to return in a cloud of glory and those who die before are going to rise to meet him in the air and the living are going to meet him in the air as well all in that cloud of Shekinah glory someday my friends If you know Jesus by faith, you too are going to be in this cloud. And this, my friends, oh, this, my friends, is the blessed hope that we hold on to. It's the blessed hope that we wrap our arms around and we recall to our minds and our hearts in the darkest of times, in political upheaval, in pandemic conditions, in economic collapse. If you know Christ by faith, you have this future hope of glory. And if you don't know Christ by faith, this hope isn't yours. And I urge you today upon the authority of the Word of God to repent from your sin and embrace Christ by faith. And this will be your hope as well. You see, this was the very reality that Jesus is giving His beloved disciples before He goes to the cross. The cross must come before glory. The suffering must come before the crown. But in the midst of the cross, in the midst of the suffering, remember, my friends, glory is coming. Now, as if that's not enough to behold, verse 7, finally, a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. This was the voice of the Father. God the Father is speaking here. The same exact thing 
is said at Jesus' baptism. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, years later after this event, listen to the words that Peter writes. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory that is out of the Shekinah glory cloud. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Peter is remembering this years later. Hear Him. Literally, listen to Him. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. What exactly is the Father telling us Well, the Father is telling us, beloved, that the law and the prophets were only partial expressions. The very realities of which Moses and Elijah represented here are only partial realities. But here, crowned in glory, is the final statement of the Father Himself. Listen to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate expression of the truth. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the ultimate promise of all that the prophets ever said. The writer of Hebrews begins his letter this way in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. You see, everything that has come before all that God has said before, all that God has done before, now converges in His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Him. Now this is a command to Peter, James, and John to listen to what Jesus is saying about the cross. You need to listen, because without the cross there is no glory. Without Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross and His glorious resurrection, you are of all men most miserable. You cannot circumvent suffering and arrive at glory. This is a command for them to embrace Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. We must listen to Jesus' words about all of life. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's no one else. You have the words of eternal life. Listen when Jesus says, If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow out of him. 
Listen to what He says. Come unto Me, all you who are weary and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Listen to Him when He says that. Listen when he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew says that when they heard this voice from heaven, they all fell face down on the ground and were terrified. And I love this. Jesus comes to them and He says, get up, don't be afraid. Don't you just love that? Verse 8 of Mark 9, suddenly when they had looked around them, They saw no one anymore, but only Jesus. I love that. The Shekinah glory has departed. Jesus' skin and clothing are no longer glowing. Moses and Elijah have disappeared. The voice of the Father was still and the disciples only See Jesus as He is backlit by the stars that He created. You see, my friends, this is what all of our experience, all of our theology, all of our ministry, all of our work comes to. Seeing only Jesus. And when this happens, oh, when this happens, our hearts honor Him in worship. We love one another as we should. We give our hearts and lives to His service and we embrace the paradox of the cross and denying ourselves because we are encouraged that glory is coming. Some months later, after this event, Toward the very end of Jesus' life, as the cross looms ever larger, He was in Jerusalem with His disciples for the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the end of the festival. And the previous night was unforgettable. It was called the illumination of the temple. It had taken place before the four massive golden candelabras that sat inside the temple as they were topped with huge torches. It was said the candelabra were as tall as the highest walls of the temple. And at the top of every candelabra was a bowl that contains 65 liters of oil. And there's a ladder up to each one, and the young priests would ascend that ladder when evening came. They would carry the oil, they would dump it into these bowls, and they would light the protruding wicks. Eyewitnesses said, that flames leapt from the temple and those flames literally illuminated not only the temple, but all of Jerusalem. 
We're told that there was singing and dancing and the playing of instruments. The exotic rite celebrated the great pillar of fire which led the Israelites during their sojourn in the wilderness. And as it engulfed the temple, it was to remind them of their deliverance. But the next morning, Jesus brings His disciples into the temple mount And the charred torches are still in place. And perhaps the smell of the oil is still in the air. And Jesus lifts up His voice in the temple. And He declares, I am the light of the world. There could scarcely be a more emphatic way to announce one of the great supreme truths of His existence. Christ was saying, that great pillar that led you through the wilderness in your deliverance, that great pillar of fire that illumined the night and enveloped the temple, that great glorious cloud that filled Solomon's temple, Jesus is saying, that was me. I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. My call to you today is to embrace the whole Christ by faith, His glory, His humanity, His divinity. His eternality, His substitutionary death, embrace Him all and fall upon Him in repentance and faith. And if you're suffering, if you need encouragement, remember, glory is coming. Would you join me please for a word of prayer? Our Father, what a tremendous truth we have seen in Your Word this morning. Tremendous in its beauty. Tremendous in its glory is the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this day, our Father, that You would comfort our hearts with the truth of this glorious Word. You would draw us to Yourself in encouragement as we remember glory is coming. Draw people to Yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. Grant repentance and faith as Your gift to darkened hearts and dawn in their hearts the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name and for His eternal sake. Amen.